Uh, Pat, Brother uh, Jeremy and Esther and family are still coming back from Texas, so Pastor Nick and Miss Gabby will take them uh, today, and uh, it'll be a blessing. You pray for them as they'll be counseling, uh, be counselors all week at camp there, and uh, I encourage, I encouraged, uh, of course, we probably couldn't have everybody at once, but I'd, I always encourage our folks, come up and uh, check it out for an hour. Spend an afternoon up there at camp. It's a little drive up to Aberdeen, but <clears throat> you'd be more than welcome to do that. A lot of folks from the local church there come and spend the evening services there. We just have lawn chairs outside. They have a speaker that uh, broadcasts outside the building there, and, and, uh, but uh, you'd be more than welcome to join us for that if you will. Um, we're today in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. I have only had one person break the cardinal rule this morning. Um, I don't I haven't talked to Pastor Nick yet, although he had somebody mention this last week to him, and it's a, a terrible thing when people wish us a good vacation when we're about to go to camp. Um, that does not count towards our weeks, okay? Amen? That is hard work. Galatians chapter 5, thank the Lord for God's word. Aren't you glad for God's word? There were two men traveling on an airplane and were seated next to each other. <coughs> One turned to the other and said, what do you do? He said, well, I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher. And uh, he kind of laughed a little bit, this, the other gentleman, and said, I don't believe in any of that religious stuff. He said, it's just for kids. You know, he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's just for children. And uh, preacher kind of smiled and didn't say anything about that. And he said, well, what do you do? He says, I'm an astronomer. He says, astronomer. Ha! I don't buy into all that stuff. It's for kids. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. How oh, I wonder where you are. I don't know about you, but I believe what's in this book and uh, what the Bible teaches, what it tells us about God, how to live our life, and how, about things to come. One of the things I love about the Bible so much is its practicality. I like the fact that you can open the Word of God and see something that helps us with our daily life. And of course, that's, as I've mentioned many times, always my goal from this pulpit. The purpose of Bible study and preaching is not knowledge. That's not a bad reason to study the Bible. But the primary purpose of teaching the Bible, preaching the Bible, and studying the Bible is so that we can apply it. It's application, not knowledge. We want to apply these things to our life. And so what we've been doing this past month is just that. Uh, in the beginning of the year, we challenged everybody to grow. That's our, our, our theme. And so as June started to come approach us about a month, over a month ago, I started thinking about, you know, here we are halfway through the year, which is happening super fast, amen. And uh, we're halfway through the year. It would be good to do a six-month checkup. That's what they do sometimes with doctors after you have a procedure. And so uh, we wanted to do a six-month checkup. And we've been asking the question throughout this month, are you growing? I agree with Steve Seibold who said you're either growing or you're dying. And in your spiritual life as well, you are either growing for God or you're slowly dying. <clears throat> we have looked at the first six fruits of the nine fruits of the Spirit. And uh, that's what we're using. If you remember uh, the first week we talked about it, the, the marks on the door that you measured for your kids. Remember that when they were little? You made a mark on the door and then they grew up bigger and then they mark on the door and... And then if you're like me, you know, you, you reach up there and make the mark on the doors. They get really bigger. 
Uh, and so you, you're, you're doing this progress. You're evaluating their growth. Well, this is our spiritual marks on the door are these fruits of the Spirit. Uh, they, the first ones we talked about, the first three fruits, we're doing them in sections of three, uh, were emotional, love, joy, and peace. The next three fruits of the Spirit are evidential. Uh, that's the ones we talked about last time. Long-suffering, gentleness, and goodness. They provide the proof of the work that God is doing in our hearts. The last three fruits we're going to look at this morning are elemental. In other words, they are the ultimate basics in our Christian life. They are the bare essentials of vital Christianity. They are the bottom line on the balance sheet of holy living. In other words, we should all have these in our life. They're elemental. Uh, they should be a part of our daily living. Let's read our passage today. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. Father, I pray you'd help us in the next few minutes here as we seek the final three here and learn what we can from them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Are you growing? Now, if you'll notice, the fruit here is singular, not plural. I know I've been saying fruits because we're splitting them up, but really, if you look at the passage, it says, but the fruit, singular. Uh, it is not, uh, th this is not a list of nine multiple choice fruits that you can choose from. Like when you go to the grocery store and they're all laid out there. There's some fruits that I like and there's others that I don't like so much. And so I pick and choose the ones I like. <clears throat> and same way with vegetables. This is not what this is about here. This is one fruit with nine characteristics. It's nine uh, aspects of that one fruit. And so uh, we should be growing in every one of these nine areas, is what I'm saying. Now, you're going to have, obviously, people that will gravitate towards one more than others. There's people that are naturally more loving. There are folks that are naturally more long-suffering. Uh, and uh, you go on down the list, but, <clears throat> but we should be growing in all of these nine characteristics. We come to number seven uh, on our list, and that is faith. Faith. The Greek word for faith is pistis. It means the conviction of the truth of anything, the belief in, in the Bible. Now this is the most, uh, this is an attitude of trust, dependability, loyalty, and uh, we have to understand now that faith is woven into the very fabric of our life. We exercise faith all day long in lots of different things. Every time you go to sit in a chair, you are demonstrating faith that this chair is going to hold you up. You don't usually test it. You don't push on it. You don't hit it. You just sit down because you've got faith. Every time you put your key in the ignition and turn, you demonstrate the faith that your car is going to start. And if you've got a Ford, it takes a little more faith. But every time you do that, you're demonstrating faith that it's going to start. When you watch the Vikings, I'll just leave it there. But you know what I'm saying. We demonstrate faith all the time in our everyday life. Now, here's the key though, friend. Uh, faith is a given, but what is important is the object of our faith. Uh, faith can be misplaced and the result is disaster. Because when you put your faith in something that is unreliable and it lets you down, 
it can be a very bad thing, and sometimes the results are many, many years in the, in the making. Now, your faith is more than just wishful thinking. Couples walking along one day, and they came to a wishing well. The wife leans over and looks into the well, and then she throws in a penny and makes a wish. The husband also decides he's going to do the same, and so he looks over uh, the, into the well, but he leaned a little too far over, and he fell into the well. And he's yelling and screaming and mad because he got all wet, and he's at the bottom of a well. The wife is really surprised, taken aback. Says, wow, this wishing well really works. Uh, but faith, faith is not a wishing well, okay? It's a little more than a wishing well. Faith, I believe, is composed of three components. And I want to look at those today. I'm going to show you some examples in Scripture. Because, And by the way, friend, this is going to be encouraging to you. Because a lot of times we think because we have doubt in our life, we're lacking in faith. But here's the truth of the matter. Faith, I believe, is made up of three components. Number one, belief. Number two, doubt. Say, doubt is the opposite of faith. No, no. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Uh, but doubt is an element of faith. Without the element of doubt in faith, it, it, it's sight. Amen? And by, the Bible says that faith is the evidence of things not seen. So there's going to be an element of doubt in faith itself. And then the third aspect of faith is acting on that belief. Now I want to show you this from the Bible in several different places, and I think you'll see clearly what I'm talking about. You ever pray for something and you're surprised when it happens? Of course, that's probably all of us, amen, because we're human. And we pray uh, for God to do something and then He brings it to pass. And we're like, wow, that really worked. I remember when we were, I used to take my kids fishing a lot when they were little. And uh, I had my oldest daughter, was probably six or seven, and then uh, about two years down from that. And we were out fishing and and uh, we had, it was one of those places, you know how it is when you go bluegill fishing? Either they're biting or they're not biting. And you usually find this out in about five minutes. Because if they're biting, they're going crazy. If they're not, they're just not going to do it. So we had been there about 20 minutes with nothing. No bites, no nibbles, no anything. And so I looked over at my daughter as I was helping one of my younger daughters. I looked over at my oldest daughter, and she's over. She had tucked her <coughs> fishing pole under her arm, and she had her hands scrunched together, and she was praying. And I was thinking, rats. Now i got to explain to her why she prayed and didn't catch nothing. You know what I'm saying? Because you want to teach them that prayer works, amen? And so now she's praying, and, uh, and then now, you know, obviously, we're not going to catch anything, and so i got to explain to her why prayer doesn't work. Well, you probably can finish this story. It was just a minute and she had a fish on the line and pulled one in. And she was saying, Daddy, it's because I prayed. It's because I prayed. Uh, a little more faith than her dad did. Amen. But uh, the, what, the point I'm trying to make is sometimes we're surprised when we pray, but praise the Lord, you still prayed. See, that's the point I'm trying to get across today. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 9. I want to show you a story here that will help you understand this even better. It was actually mentioned in the adult Sunday school class. Matthew chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9. We have a man here that came to Jesus with a son that was possessed of a demon. He told Jesus, I asked the disciples to help me and they were unable to help me. 
And uh, so he came to Jesus. <coughs> the father had a need, and thank God he came to the right place. Amen. And look at verse number 22. He says to Jesus, If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. How about that? Saying to God, if you can. Isn't that something? If, if you can do this, God, saying to Jesus, if you can do it, can you help us? Now, Asaph talks about this in the book of Psalms, how Israel did this to the Lord in Psalm chapter 78. talks about in verse 19 to 20 of that verse, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Can God uh, give bread also? Can He provide flesh for His people? These were accusatory statements against an omnipotent God, and it goes on to say that they spake against God. God's response in verse 21 of Psalm 78 was this, Therefore the Lord heard this and was very wroth. Why would he be angry? He was angry because he had done all these things for them. He had proved it. He had shown it already. He said in verse 22, Because they believed not in God and trusted not in His salvation, though He had commanded the clouds from above and opened the doors of heaven, and He had rained down manna on them to eat and had given them of the corn of heaven. Man did eat angels' food. And he sent them meat to the, to the field. The message is quite clear here. You, can, uh, you ask the question, uh, can God? And his loud and uh, clear answer is, God can. And the answer to our can God question is always going to be, friend, God can. So then he comes to Jesus back in our text there. And he says, if thou canst, um, Jesus quickly corrects him. Look at your text there. He says, no, 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 no. If thou canst believe. I like that. Because God working in our life will have an if attached. But the if is never if God can. The if is on our part. And did you notice that? So if there is, there is an if, but we usually put it in the wrong place. The question should be if we believe. If we have faith. That's why there's often no victory in our life. That's why we struggle with our pride and we struggle with our self-will, our love of the world and our lust and our anger. It is not if Jesus has the power to help us, the ability to set us free. He does. God can, always. The question is, if we will pray, if we will trust, do not misplace the if in your life like this father did. So Jesus said, if thou canst believe. Now, I want to point out, though, what, what he said to Jesus next, and I don't want you to miss this. Look back down in your text here. I believe, he said. What does he say next? Help thou mine unbelief. What's he saying? He's saying, I believe, Lord, and I doubt. And I don't want that doubt to stop me from getting the blessing from the belief. I don't want my doubt to rule the day. I want you to help me with my doubt. You see, he had all three elements of faith in his life here. He had belief. In that, we see the fact that he came to Jesus. He knew enough to come to Jesus and get help. But secondly, he also had doubt. He spoke about it. He says, help thou mine unbelief. And then he also had the thing that really matters, action in spite of doubt. He came to Jesus and asked for help even though he had doubt. Isn't that a blessing? That's faith. And you can guess what happened next. Jesus healed his son. Faith is belief. Then when we doubt, 
action in spite of our doubt. That's faith. That's how you put it, in action. Uh, faith is not a noun. <coughs> faith is a verb. Hebrews chapter 11, By faith Abel offered. By faith Noah built. By faith Abel, uh, Abraham went. We see all throughout that chapter that faith is an action word. It's a verb. It's not a noun. Don't allow your doubt then to cripple you and prohibit you from doing the right thing. There's always an element of doubt. Uh, what we do is pray anyway, act anyway, serve anyway, give anyway. If you've, if you've uh, come to, maybe you're, you're I, I talk to different people through discipleship and all that, and sometimes there's a, uh, a process to the, get to the point where we're giving faithfully and tithing and those things. You know, to tithe takes a little faith, doesn't it? It does. I, I've uh, tithed more than 10% for a while now, and it takes some faith to tithe. And so to do that, though, uh, there's going to be a little doubt sometimes. You know, if I give this check, am I going to be able to pay the bills? Am I going to be able to do what I need to do over here? You know what we do? We do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. You do what God says no matter what. Even though there's a little doubt, it should not step in the way of you doing what He tells you to do. That's faith. Belief. Doubt, yes. Action in spite of the doubt. Turn to Acts. Well, you don't have to turn there. I'll tell you about it. But if you'd like to, it's found in Acts chapter 12. You remember when Peter's in jail? We mentioned this a few weeks ago. Uh, I want to look at a different aspect of the story this time. But Peter's in jail. And the church decides to have a prayer meeting <coughs> for their preacher. That's a good thing. I hope if I'm ever in jail, you'll get together and have a prayer meeting. Amen? That would be good. Uh, and so they're having a, <coughs> a prayer meeting. And they meet at the house of Mary, who's the mother of John Mark. Uh, they got to the house. This was going to be an all-night thing, by the way. They were praying late into the night. Uh, they were still praying when Peter showed up later in the middle of the night. And so they got there. They found their place, and they got their cup of coffee, and they settled in for the long haul. They're going to spend all night praying for their preacher. Dear God, help our preacher get out of jail Help him to somehow be spared. He was going to be killed, presumably, the next day or very soon after. And save the life of our preacher. They took turns. No doubt they recounted the promises of God and uh, His protection. And maybe they made a bunch of promises of their own as well. They told a girl named Rhoda, Rhoda, you watch the door. We're going to be in here busy praying. We don't want to be disturbed. If any latecomers from the church come, you just bring them in quietly, set them over here, uh, but don't disturb us. If a salesman shows up, you send him packing. Anybody else that's not part of our church, we don't want to be disturbed. You watch the door. We're going to pray. Meanwhile, across town, God's answering the prayer of this church. There's 16 soldiers guarding Peter, and Peter's in the, uh, currently in the middle of nappy-nappy time. And he's taking a long snooze, sleeping like a baby. I, again, I mentioned that last time. Babies don't sleep that good. I don't know why people say sleeping like a baby. Sleeping like a teenager. That's what Peter was doing. And uh, so there he was. And the angel came and he kicked Peter up and woke him up. And uh, the chains fell off of his hands. The, the, uh, pr the prison guards had all fallen uh, unconscious. And the angel hissed at him, basically, get dressed, follow me. And so he gets, uh, Peter's, by the way, robotically going through this because he thinks it's a dream. He thinks he's sleepwalking. He's been deep asleep. Peter was sleeping so deeply, it wasn't until he got out in the street 
he was fully awake. The Bible tells you that if you read that story. And so as they're walking out of the prison that night, they saw the first ever Walmart doors open up in front of them. As your Bible says, the doors opened of their own accord. Amazing. Peter this whole time thinks he's dreaming this. But in verse 9, uh, when they're out on the street, <coughs> the angel has gone. He's standing there kind of dazed and confused. And you know how it is when you first wake up, you kind of got fog in your brain. And now he's waking up. He realizes, I wasn't dreaming. I'm out of jail. The cool night air is hitting his face and he's kind of uh, coming to his senses. And there he is. He's free. Got nobody chasing him. And uh, I guess I'll maybe go to Mary's house. If anybody's meeting, that's where they'll meet. Maybe that's where they met for church or uh, met for their other things. So I guess I'll go to Mary's house and see if anybody's there. He goes over to Mary's house. He knocks on the door. Well, you know who's going to answer. She's been put there to guard the place. Rhoda comes to the door. She had been told, don't bother us because we're praying for our preacher. She comes to the door and she hears his voice. Ha ha! It's Peter! And she doesn't even open the door to let him in. She leaves the door locked, runs in to tell the church, hey, you guys won't believe it! Peter's actually at the door. You know what they told Rhoda? Rhoda, you're crazy. That's what they said. You have gone mad. You're out of your mind, Rhoda. And uh, she, no, really, I seen him, I heard him. Rhoda, if you're seeing Peter and hearing Peter, something's went wrong upstairs. You, uh, the, the cheese has slipped out of your sandwich. You know, there's something wrong with your thinking. You are mad, you're crazy. She insists, but he's there, I saw him. And they think, oh no, he must have already been killed. It's his ghost. It's his spirit. Um, he's, it, it has to be, if you actually saw Peter or think you saw Peter, then it's his angel. He's already dead. Let's pray. No, 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 she says. Don't pray. Come, follow me to the door. She followed, they finally come to the door, and there's Peter. What gives? You know, he's been knocking at the door for the last five minutes. Uh, it was harder for him to get into a prayer meeting than it was to get out of a jail with 16 soldiers guarding him. What's going on there? I'll tell you what's going on there. Every single element of faith. They had belief. They met. They got together to pray. They were lifting their preacher's name up. They were asking God to deliver him. That's belief. They had doubt. When he actually answered their prayer, they called her crazy. No way. It's not possible, Rhoda. We're praying to get... And stop bothering us. We're praying for Peter to get out of jail. And Peter's there. They had doubt. You know what they did? They prayed anyway. That's faith. Doubt. Belief. Belief in spite of the doubt. One more example in the Bible. Remember the Hebrew uh, three Hebrew children? In Daniel chapter 3, in the fiery furnace. Asbestos Jews, we call them. Wouldn't bow, bend, break, or burn. And uh, they, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had made a, a, uh, uh, an image of gold. Everybody was supposed to bow down to this image when this music sounded, and so the image was done. The big day came. Everybody's gathered around, and the band strikes up the music, and everybody falls down except for three guys that are standing, won't bow. If you're standing in a group of people that are bowing, you get noticed. And they did get noticed. They got dragged in front of the king, and, uh, oh, he was mad. He was upset. The Bible says he was in a fury. And he brought, and as they 
uh, were brought into the king, uh, he decides, he, he cools down a little bit and says, you know what, I'll give you one more chance. I'll let you go out. This time when the music sounds, you please bow. And then we'll be fine. I'll forget this ever happened. You just go out and do what I told you to do. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 17, this is what they said. One of them, I don't know who was the spokesman, but one of them probably spoke for the group. We'll just say for the sake of guessing, Shadrach. I think that's the coolest name out of the bunch, Shadrach. And so Shadrach maybe spoke up for them. But this is what they said in unison, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. Now listen to the change in tenses here. He's able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. You know what they're saying there? This isn't part of my point, but I just think this is an awesome point here. God's going to save us from the mess that we're in today. Amen? And maybe if you have a disease or you got <coughs> problems in your family or you got a, uh, even if, it, if you'd have a life-threatening thing like cancer or something, God will save you from it. One day, He'll either take you to heaven, that's saving you from this trouble, isn't it? Or He'll deliver you from it on earth. But either way, uh, we live in this sin-cursed world with problems galore, and one day we will be delivered from it. Amen. And that's why I'm not looking for the undertaker, I'm listening for the upper taker. Amen. One day we'll be delivered from it. But back to our text here. So they say, He will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. The next three words crack me up. But if not, but if not. There, here's what they're saying. This, this is paraphrased in the Yoder translation. Listen here, king. God can save us. We know it. And God will save us, we think. That's what they're essentially saying here. Uh, but in spite of doubt that they had, they exercised their faith and they did not let the threat of that fire weaken them. They did not let the threat of the fire make them bowed. Were they scared? By the way, they're human, okay? Were they scared? They were terrified. I'm sure they were. But shakingly, they stood there and said, Listen, we, you can throw us in that fire, but we're not going to bow down to a false god because we only serve one god. And by the way, king, he can save us from all this mess. He can save us from your hand. And, and we kind of think he will, <laughs> we hope. Some doubt but they used the belief they had to overcome the doubt and they stood firm and they were delivered. Ordinary, everyday faith becomes saving, sanctifying faith when placed in the Lord Jesus Christ. One of God's characteristics is that He is totally trustworthy. Amen? You can trust Him and absolutely depend on Him. Faith is believing God, knowing that our life is safe in His hands. There will be doubt. There will be doubt in your life. Will you act on your faith despite of it. That's what I'm asking. There's going to be doubt. Do the right thing anyhow, and God will show up and you watch. So how's your faith today, friend? How is your faith? Are you growing? Are you growing? I hope so. Let's get right on it here. Meekness. The next fruit of the Spirit is meekness. Uh, prahotes is the original word, and it is not easily translatable into English. In fact, some scholars say that maybe the closest idea is gentleness. One definition has been given the midpoint between excessive prone to anger and incapacity for anger. So that middle point between somebody who flies off the handle and somebody who's completely incapable of it. 
Often today the word meekness is equated with weakness, which it 100% absolutely is not. Meekness is not weakness. Now, most of the disciples were self-promoting, confident guys. If you read throughout Scripture, they're constantly having discussions about who's the greatest, like a bunch of schoolyard boys. Who's the great? I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And they, had, they probably didn't say it that way, but they were arguing about who was the best. Two of these guys uh, at the forefront were named James and John, brothers, sons of Zebedee. They were uh, called the sons of thunder. And they, uh, were, they wanted to be in Jesus' inner circle. In fact, they came to Jesus one time and said, hey, we want to be your number one and two. Not only that, mommy came and saw them. Their mom came and saw Jesus and said to Jesus, I'd like for you to promote my son. I want them to inherit the number one and the number two spot in your kingdom. Later, Jesus is preaching in Matthew chapter 5. And I got to think he slid his gaze over to James and John when he said this. When he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Like, uh, meekness is not any more popular today than it was in the days of James and John. It's more common for us to read how we can get our rights, how we uh, can get what we deserve. By the way, if you asked a group of your uh, family members or somebody in your family who knows you well to make a list of your most admiral, admiral, uh, excellent traits, okay? Uh, somebody to put down a, a bunch of your good traits and they wrote down meek, you might even be offended by that. Meek? What do you mean meek? Remember when you were a kid and used to say, when I get older, when I grow up, I want to be meek? Me neither. I wouldn't say that, right? That's not an aspiration of ours. Children, parents tell their children to be hardworking, honest, stand up for themselves, be successful. You ever heard a father tell his son, I want you to be more meek? Maybe that's happened, but I don't think it happens often. Meekness in the Bible, though, comes from a place of strength, not from weakness. All we have to do is think of the two men the Bible talks about being meek the most, Moses and Jesus. Picture Moses marching in in front of Pharaoh, demanding that he lets the people of God go. Picture Jesus as he picks up a whip and drives the money changers out of the temple. These two men were described in the Bible as being meek, but they certainly were not weak. I think the best illustration of meekness is found in this story. Michael Jordan, by the way, greatest basketball player that's ever lived. I don't even want to discuss it. Uh, but uh, some people go with different guys. But anyway, uh, Michael Jordan's team was once down by 20 points in the game. The superstar pumped it up into overdrive, fought for every rebound. He swiped at every pass. He was aggressive. He was Ruthless. He played like a man possessed. If you were watching baseball, uh, basketball in the 90s, you remember this. Remember how he played. He was like a basketball superhero, surrounded by simple human players. And he was a scoring machine. And they won that game. One week later is an entirely, totally different story. He had all the power, all the ability that he had the previous week. But now in this game... He had the ball stolen from him repeatedly. He was blocked out of rebounds more than once. He couldn't make a basket because of the tough defensive pressure. He turned the ball over and over and over, lost the ball to the other team. What was the difference in these two weeks? Well, this week he was playing a benefit game against a bunch of disabled students. He let them steal the ball from him. He let them beat him. He uh, was 
meek, you see. He had lots of power, but he kept it under control. He had all the power of the previous game, but he governed it. That's a picture of what meekness is. You're meek when you have the power to hurt someone and you choose not to. You are meek when you have the ability to take someone down that has hurt you, but you choose not to. You could easily force things to go your way, but instead you're kind. That's meekness. I want to look at three aspects of meekness real quickly. Power under control uh, is, is one of them. The meek person is a gentle person, a controlled person. Uh, they often give up their rights for the rights of another. No task is too high for them. None are too low. They don't simply forgive seven times, but 70 times seven. A meek person will get angry at times, as Jesus did in the temple. But here's the difference. Let me point out the difference between anger in a regular person and anger in a meek person. A meek person only gets angry when somebody on the behalf of somebody else. I'll give you an example. Jesus. He's whipping people. I'd love to see that scene. Tables flipping and money flying and guys in skirts running away. Robes they wore then. Uh, and, they, and Jesus is sitting there whipping this whip. That would have been an amazing thing to see. Why? Because you've turned my uh, house of my father into a den of thieves. On behalf of something else, in the defense of someone else, he was angry. But when they're pounding nails in his hands, when they're whipping him, when they're crash, crushing a thorn, crown of thorns on his head, uh, he's not angry then. He doesn't bash out then because a meek person is not angry at uh, when they get hurt but they are angry on behalf of others all the while living under God's control secondly self is conceded to the will of God uh, this is humility a meek person is a humble person we're not talking about woe is meism. oh I guess I'm just no good I'm worthless nobody likes me I guess I'll go eat worms we're not talking about a person like that we're talking about exalting God in your life so much that in comparison, uh, you see yourself as nothing. Your will becomes dissolved in God's will. Meekness is not self-centered. Meekness is God-centered. And then trust in God. We totally trust in God. That's meekness. If we are able to know that God meets our needs and we realize that God's in control of my life and my circumstances and that helps me to look out and look care for other people instead of caring only for me, that's meekness. How are you doing? How, are, how is your meekness? Are you growing? Are you growing in this area of meekness? And then finally we finish with temperance. The word is enkratia. It means self-control. Lack of self-control leads to a life full of anger. And when you allow anger to rule in your life, you'll do stupid things. Anybody ever notice that? Anger leads to stupid things. Deputies in Broward County, Florida could do little for the victim of John McGivney's shooting rampage. The 1994 green Chrysler LeBaron sustained five gunshot wounds to its front hood. It was pronounced dead at the scene of the crime. McGivney, 64 years old, was angry because his car kept breaking down. So he walked out with a loaded 380 semi-automatic pistol headed towards his car. An eyewitness said that McGivney pointed the, car at the, car, uh, the gun at the car's hood and shot five times. He told this witness I'm putting this car out of its misery. The report from the sheriff's office listed the Chrysler as deceased. Anger will make you do stupid things. With all the other fruits of the Spirit, as with all the other fruits of the Spirit, let's look at Jesus as a prime example. Think of how perfect he was in his self-control at the time of his trial. 
standing before Caiaphas, knowing every bit what a callous soul he's dealing with here, because he could read him like an open book. But think about his self-control there, uh, as he was completely uh, had his, is confronted by a string of false witnesses that were hired to testify against him. The Bible says he held his peace. How complete was his self-control when having confessed his deity under oath, uh, the member of the Sanhedrin, they spat in his face and they slapped him and they taunted him, saying, prophesy unto us, O thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? Matthew 26, 68. Think of his self-control before Herod. They sat the wicked men. Uh, they were surrounded by soldiers there. And they, uh, there stood the chief priests and the scribes, the Jewish authorities. The Bible says vehemently accused him. Jesus said nothing. All the while demonstrating his self-control. I ask you today, friend, how is your self-control? You know, when you're at a buffet, you've already had more than enough to eat. You know that another plate will make you miserable for the next four hours but you have that plate anyway. That's not self-control. When you stay up late surfing the internet, knowing full well you have to be up early the next morning, you lack self-control. When you procrastinate on a project, leaving it till the very last minute until in a panic you have to get it done, you lack self-control. When you spend and spend and never save, you lack self-control. When you watch five hours of television a day and only spend a few minutes in Bible and prayer, you lack self-control. When you choose the pleasures of sin for a season, forfeiting the eternal blessings of obedience to Christ, you lack self-control. Self-control is the ability to choose wise actions. If you're going to grow in Christ, we need to make wise choices about what we allow into our life. How are you doing in your self-control? Again, observe Jesus at Calvary. See his temperance as he submitted to the soldiers who drove nails into his hands and his feet. Listen to him pray for their forgiveness. See him provide for his mother. And hear him promise to the dying thief a home in heaven. Not once did he lose his sublime self-control. His mind, his heart, and his will were all under the control of his Holy Spirit. Right down to the moment where he bowed his head and die. Then we have the audacity to get upset when someone looks at us wrong. Then we have the audacity to demand our rights. That's, that's sad. We need to have temperance. We need to have temperance. Who do we think we are demanding our rights after Christ gave up His? Now, this is not a result of the mind, none of these, as, as we just conclude all of them here. They're not a result of the mind and the emotions and the senses being brought under control of the human will. It's a result of the human will being brought under the control of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit thereby energizes the human will to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our life. That brings us self-control and all the other things that we talked about. How is your self-control? Are you growing? Now, in all this, as we've been working through these, we've learned one valuable lesson. You can't do this on your own. You can't. That's why it's a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, love? You really going to be able to agape love like Jesus did? Love your enemies? Do good to those that hate you? That's a tall order. Joy? You mean you can have joy in your life despite all the circumstances being bad and your life falling apart? Peace? This world being in turmoil, 
uh, you're expected to have peace and your marriage is in trouble and all these things are happening, yes, you can have peace. Long-suffering? Really? I'm supposed to suffer injustice, pain, all the while with a smile on my face? Gentleness? Goodness? To have gentleness toward everyone, even if they don't deserve it, and the goodness to drive me to serve them? Faith? I'm supposed to ignore all my doubts and common sense, and uh, I'm supposed to do crazy things like leave my home and move to South Dakota? I mean, this is just crazy talk. Faith? I'm supposed to have faith? Meekness? I earned this position. Now, I, how, I can't use it to my advantage. Temperance? I'm supposed to control myself? Have you met my family? Have you seen my situation? Friend, the truth is, you're not going to be able to do this on your own. When a Christian tries to live these nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit in their life, you know what they're like? I'll show you. They're like this guy right here. Now, just in case we have somebody here that's Amish or blonde, uh, this will not work when it's plugged into itself. Okay? Got to be plugged into the wall where there's power. But this is how many of us live. We're trying to plug into our own power. And guess what? There's none there. It's not going to work. You can't plug into yourself and expect yourself to have the power to do these things. It's not going to happen. You've got to plug into a source of power that's greater than what you have in your hands. You can't do it yourself. But if you plug into the Lord Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit... By the way, that's why they're called fruits of the Spirit, not fruits of the Christian, because the Christian can't manufacture them. You can't. Don't be discouraged if you can't love. None of us can love like we're supposed to. It's the Holy Spirit who loves through you. If you ask God to help you, 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 you might have heard, heard these messages, we talk about it all the time, how we're supposed to love those that hate us and... And you tried that and you thought about it. Why don't you ask God, God, I can't love that person, but I'll tell you what I'll do, Lord. I'll let you love them through me. And you watch God change your heart, change your situation. You can't do it in your own power. It's not going to work. You've got to plug into something else, and that is His Holy Spirit. That's why He calls it the fruit of the Spirit. Do you really think you have the power to love? To have the joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. In no way in the world. You can't do it, I can't do it. That's why he calls it the fruit of the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit rule and reign in your life. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm hoping, <coughs> friend, that you're growing. I hope that you can look at these different things and say, Hey, <coughs> I, I, I'm not where I ought to be, but thank God I'm not where I was. That's the best prayer you can pray right there. Just be growing. It doesn't mean that I'm saying you ought to have arrived. None of us have. I certainly haven't. But we ought to be growing. Are you growing? What kind of love do you display? Do you have joy? Do you have peace? Are you able to suffer long, sometimes uh, suffer a, a wrong or, a, or, or an insult without blowing up? Do you have gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance? Are you ruled by doubt? As she begins to play and the piano's playing there and the